I have been thinking a lot lately about, I don't know if this is the right word, but about legacy or the name that lasts past our life, reputation that lives on. Um, I just think the more I live, the more I find us saying goodbye to good people. And isn't it interesting, sometimes we don't realize a person's impact until they're gone, you know? And I don't know why, maybe it's, I am middle-aged, you know, 45 or whatever, maybe maybe that's why. I've just been thinking a lot lately about that idea of the thing that lives on, you know? Um, one of the things that spurred that thought on recently was uh, the death of Tiny T. Um Tiny T had a hoagie shop in Delco, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, um, for weeks since November when he passed. I've planned on sharing his story this week as we come to Acts chapter 20, but it just feels weird to share any kind of sermon illustration related to the city of Philadelphia as we were walking into the playoffs. Um, but, you know, everybody needs a redemptive story, and so even... The city, if, if you don't know what the game of football is, you don't get that. But um, so any guy that has the reputation of called Tiny, what do we know about him? Yes, he had another nickname. It was Big Ed. Those are the two nicknames that Tiny T had, Tiny T and Big Ed. Um, Ed Trinkle Sr. was his name. And when he passed in November, um, I, I'll tell you, I, I never met Tiny T. I've never been to his hoagie shop. Um, I've never uh, eaten one of those hoagies. All I know about him is, is really one thing. I know his son, Ed Trinkle Jr., is a friend of mine. Been a friend for about 10 years or more. Um, and what I know about Ed and his wife, Kim, is they love Jesus. Um, Ed, Ed and his wife uh, serve here in the Metroplex, pastor over in Richardson, and they have four adult kids. They're a little farther down the road of life than me. Their kids love the Lord and are married to awesome people. And uh, I'm, we're kind of watching them enter into that grandparent life. And uh, we're fine to wait a while for that, um, just for the record. Um, yes, Lord, my wife just spoke in tongues on the front row. Um but when he passed, his grandkids were trying to find a way to honor his heart. Because apparently he always had this larger-than-life personality and, and was just like, loved everybody who walked in his hoagie shop. But something happened when he was 50 years old. He met Jesus Christ. He was baptized by his son, Paul. How cool is that? God changed his life. His grandkids were like, how do we honor him with his passing? And so they went and found the original logo of the original Tiny T's food store. And they're like, hey, we're going to do a little fundraiser and sell these hoodies and crews and, and T-shirts. And all the proceeds are going to go to Mana Worldwide in his name. Isn't that cool? That's how Ed and I met, was on the board of directors with Mana Worldwide. Just a cool legacy moment, you know? All I know of the guy is the generational fruit that God is bearing out. Then I think of another story about legacy 
that is not from November. It's actually from a long time ago, 135 years ago, uh, to be exact, 135 years ago in this coming April, in 1888. A Swedish chemist woke up 135 years ago and opened the newspaper to read his own obituary. A French newspaper had mistakenly printed his death instead of his brother's death who had just passed. And the, the newspaper obituary said, The merchant of death has died. That's what he saw as his legacy. The obituary went on to say, Alfred Nobel, a chemist, died a wealthy man. As the inventor of dynamite, he became rich by finding ways to kill people more efficiently than ever before. What a legacy. And it's so moved him that he had an opportunity most of us don't have. He had an opportunity to see in print his legacy before he ever died. So he took his wealth and established a foundation that would recognize people who were making much for peace. The Nobel Peace Prize was birthed out of that encounter by reading a false obituary. As we finally come back here to the book of Acts, chapter number 20, we get to kind of walk into the Apostle Paul's Alfred Nobel moment. Not so much that he read a false obituary, but that he, before the end of his days, had an opportunity to examine what makes for an enduring legacy. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Please grab your Bibles. And uh, we're going to hold them up and say our creed together and then jump in together uh, back into the book of Acts. So hold up your Bible, if you would, please. And let's declare our creed together this morning. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter 20. It's page 874 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Acts chapter number 20. Um, we're going to do a quick kind of catch up since it's been a while um, since we were in the book of Acts. And then kind of dive into this, this perspective of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20. I'm going to look at verse number 1. It says, after the uproar ceased. I don't know if you remember the uproar that it's mentioning here. Uh, you'd have to go the whole way back to like Thanksgiving of 2020, right? Way back then. Uh, we looked for a few weeks in Acts chapter 19 about the Apostle Paul spent a long time in Ephesus. And at some point in time uh, in, in his, his stay there, the seven sons of a priest who specialized in, he, he traveled, he was a mobile, uh, uh, um, I almost said extortionist, exorcist. There's the word that just left my brain for a second. Although he would charge people money for it. So maybe that was Freudian. Anyways, um, scroll. So he would go in and, and cast out demons. And then his sons all did the same thing. The seven sons of Siva. And they tried to cast out this demon in the name of the apostle Paul. And the demon speaks to them. How terrifying. He says, I know Jesus. I recognize Paul. Who are you? And they didn't run away. 
They stayed long enough for him to jump on top of them and overtake them, and they run away naked and wounded. And all of a sudden, the the threat to all the wealth being made by idol sales, uh, little miniature idols, little keepsake idols, all of a sudden this is being threatened. We we threaten the true idol, which is the idol of wealth. And and we looked at that story. They, they they almost a riot almost forms in this town. Two of the followers of Paul are brought in before hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people, and their life is threatened. And, As that scene ends, we pick back up now in Acts chapter 20. After that uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. After encouraging them, he said farewell. He said farewell and departed for Macedonia. The word farewell is important because that really is the theme for Acts chapter 20. That's the theme for the the legacy conversation here in Acts chapter 20. Um, If you... Uh, grew up in church, if a pastor ever preaches from Acts chapter 20 randomly, someone's resigning that day. And so I just want to say we're in Acts chapter 20 because that's what comes after 19. And so I have no resignations to announce today that I'm aware of. <laughs> it's morning still young, I don't know. Um, uh, and I, I thought during worship, I thought, we're preaching through Acts 20 and Trevor's not here. Uh, I'm not announcing that Trevor is gone. Uh, they're in Michigan seeing his family. Uh, because why wouldn't you go to Michigan in January? Um, I hope he's watching. I love you. Um, sent horrible pictures and videos of this white stuff all over the ground. Uh, snow. Okay, anyways, um, this is like the farewell chapter, right? For the Apostle Paul... You gotta remember, or try to remember, how deep these relationships were. He's only been in ministry for somewhere around nine, maybe closer to ten years-ish. Like, he's only been a follower of Jesus for 23 years, but we said at the beginning, like, he kinda was just discipled for 13 years. But his first missionary journey was about nine or ten years ago. He's now at the tail end of his third missionary journey. And so he spent, if you remember from from uh, November, he spent three years. Like he was super mobile until he got to Ephesus. And then that's the longest he'd ever been with followers of Jesus. Like these are the closest relationships he'd formed yet. He basically spent a third of his ministry with, with these people. And, and he's now going to say farewell. We're not going to read all of Acts chapter 20 this morning, um, but he, he sort of starts another typical Paul-looking whirlwind tour where he goes and spends a month in Greece, and then it's one week in Troas, and, and then he's headed to a port town. He believes the Holy Spirit has called him to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he's on mission. And on this mission, he's going to say some farewells. In these farewells, we get a glimpse of the clarity that comes from transition moments. Look at verse number 17. He ends up in a port town called Miletus, and it says, From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. He didn't have time to travel himself to Ephesus. He had them come meet him there, and he's going to say farewell. What we're going to walk through this week and next week here in Acts chapter 20 is the only sermon in the book of Acts that was recorded that is just a sermon delivered to believers. 
It's the only sermon delivered just to Christians. Everywhere else we've been, we are told it's been kind of a mixed bag. And we're told a ton of times. As a matter of fact, in verse 1 we just looked at, it says he encouraged them. So he, he obviously preached to Christians all the time. We just don't have any record of it. We don't know what he said. This time, Luke, who's now traveling with them, remember that? Luke took a lot of notes this time. This was, this was a special moment. This was a, a lean in close and get some clarity moment. The reality of the way we do church life here in the States is people leave churches very frequently. People leave churches very frequently for the first time in the history of the thing called church. This idea of I got my feelings hurt and so I left or I don't like the new preacher or I don't like the new music guy or I don't like the new carpet or I don't like the new brand of toilet paper or I all the all the crazy things we've heard. That's brand new. Like that's never throughout the whole history of the church. That's never been a thing. And sometimes people leave a church for very, very valid reasons. They move away. God calls them to go serve in a different church. Totally appropriate reasons. The Galloways are here. They moved away. Now they got right with Jesus for this morning and came back home. We miss y'all. There's appropriate reasons that somebody leaves a church, right? But let's keep it real for a minute, right? There's a whole lot of really inappropriate reasons that people leave churches today. Can we, can we be honest about that? And in, in, in this idea of transition, I, I think if we'll let it, the text can really help us think this morning, not so much about Paul's legacy, but about a church's legacy. Like about what really matters, like the stuff that's going to endure later. Because here's the deal. Every one of us in this room are stewarding an inheritance at this church. This church was started in 1943. A lot has changed in the way that stuff looks and the way it operates and the way it functions just in the 14 years I've been here. But there's a handful of things that have not changed that by God's grace in our chapter of the story, we will shepherd and guard those foundational things because they are the things that will stand the test of time. In Paul's farewell address, we get a glimpse of the stuff that endures, the stuff that deserves a line in the obituary, the, the stuff that is, is legacy material. This clarity in, in his depth of relationship here, we see the trends that come and go, but a healthy church has elements that stand the test of time. In his personal legacy, we see, I think, some healthy reasons to choose to be committed to a church and, and to choose to help defend those things. And, and let me say this too. We spent two weeks in our next step series thinking about the question, what does it actually look like to live like Jesus? Can I just piggyback off of those two weeks of thought and say this? One of the things it looks like to live like Jesus is to value his bride. And when I say value his bride, I don't mean come to church on Sunday, although I think that's part of it. I mean way more than that. I mean take ownership to guard the things that matter. To to be willing to defend the stuff that's worthy of legacy. Now, I have to confess before we really dive into this this morning. This is very intimidating to talk about. To read the legacy 
of a godly man like the Apostle Paul and be like, here's what we can learn about it. It's quite a high standard. I got to be honest with you, because a bunch of what he says really falls on the leadership culture of a church. It's a little intimidating. So with fear and trepidation, let's continue on in the text. The first thing I want you to see is in this verse, and that is a healthy church is marked by or defined by a team of leaders. A healthy church has a team of leaders, not a dictator. Not a CEO. Not the guy. It's a team of people. We see what the Apostle Paul called for. This farewell is to the elders, right? There's three words used to describe healthy church leadership in the whole New Testament. Interestingly, all three are used in this one passage. The first one is this word that's translated here as elders. It's the Greek word presbyteros, a presbytery, right? It's it's the Jewish understanding of that pastoral role. Skip down with me to verse number 28. We're going to see two more words in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's now speaking to these elders. So all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, here's the next word, overseers. Overseers. Overseers is not the word presbyteros, it's the word episkopos. Sometimes in your English Bible it's translated bishop. It's more the Greek understanding of that pastoral role. He says overseers here, which is a great English uh, transliteration of that word. Um, he's made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. That's how much the church matters to him, by the way. Purchased with his own blood. But that word care for, perhaps if you're using a, a different English translation, your translation might say to shepherd the, the church of God. Or maybe your translation says even to shepherd the flock of God. It's the word shepherd. That word shepherd is, is more of the rural picture of that kind of leadership. And so we've got elders, overseers, and shepherds all in one passage of scripture here. But here's why that's important. Those three words have one common denominator. One common denominator. You know what the one common denominator is? They're plural. All three words are plural. God bless you. You hated that I just called you out, didn't you? And now I'm just going to make it worse. Okay. Um, all three are plural. This is meant to be a team operation. Even in a really small church that might not have the money to have a staff, a healthy church is still defined by a team of leaders. Because not all of those leaders are necessarily full-time ministerial staff. The, the reality is that for a lot longer than I've been here, Tommy and Terry Harris have been leaders in this church. Tommy, even in an oversight type of role. Kathy Wrench is in Temple Kids today. That, that's just, she's been serving in this church like seven times longer than I've been alive. Please tell her I said that. Nikki Briley is as much shepherding the ministry here today as I am. 
even Neil. As hard as it is for me to say. No, it is shepherding the flock of God. This is meant to be a team project. And the reason I think that's so important is all of church history, I think they would have sped over this in the text because that's how the church functioned throughout all of church history. After the Industrial Revolution, all of a sudden we took this idea of the capitalist leader and we implanted that into the church and turned it into the CEO thing. We've allowed a business model of our culture to inform the way a lot of churches operate. And I'm just telling you, the, the churches where you see the most corruption in leadership are the churches that are the most centered on one person. The most uh, abuse of power and cover up of scandal and misappropriation of funds and hidden sexual sin. It, that happens and that happens in all churches. But that happens way more in the churches where you just better not confront the leader. And that is not just unbiblical and unhealthy. It dishonors this whole thing that Christ shed his blood for. Like it brings reproach on the idea of church. The the reality is I truly believe this with all my heart. I really believe that if, if something tragic were to happen to me tomorrow, I believe the mission and vision of this church would not change the next day. I believe that. I believe with all my heart that I get to serve at a church that I don't feel the pressure of on my shoulders. A healthy church is a team of leaders. Every time you hold a door open and say, good morning, we're glad you're here. You're being a part of the team of leaders who serve at this church. If you pick up a piece of trash in the parking lot on the way in, you're part of the team. Welcome. You, didn't, you might not have known that. Uh, we don't have any business cards for you. I'm sorry. But welcome to the team. That's how this works. This is not based on a personality. This is not based on a person, nor should it ever be. The healthy church has a team of leaders, and I think it's really cool that the Apostle Paul is using that verbiage. Because if there was ever a guy who was like, I got this, wouldn't it have been Paul? Right? Anyways. All right. Verses number 18 and 19. Let's finally get into this. They came to him. He said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. The second mark of a healthy church I want us to see here is a healthy church has authentic leaders. So the first two marks here kind of fall into the the leadership culture of a church. A healthy church is marked by authentic leaders. A healthy church is not defined by perfect leaders who think they're better than everybody else. A a healthy church is marked by leaders who've said, I've lived among you. (laughs) Like we've broken bread together. In the text, we read that they got to eat meals with the Apostle Paul. Some of us have eaten meals together. A lot of us have had coffee together. Can I get a witness in the house of the Lord? He lived an open life. He said, I was just genuine among you. I was in it for the trials. He was also in here for the successes. He'll talk about those in a minute. The phrase lately that's been on my mind a lot is, is I want to be the kind of person who's in it with you in the mountaintops and the messes. Right? Um, 
that were in it for the highs and the lows, for the wins and the losses. We, we, I just want to tell you, the leadership culture here, from our lay leaders to our staff leaders and everybody in between, please hear me when I tell you, we desperately don't want to have a Sunday morning only friendship or relationship with you. Like, we really want to walk with you if you'll let us. You're not a burden to us. When you tell us that you're having surgery, that that's not a burden that we bear. Please let us know. We want to walk with you. I, I, I really want us to, to foster a culture here that says, man, when life hits the fan, there are leaders in our church who care about me. I don't have to hide that. I don't have to be secretive about that. I don't have to have shame about that. We're in it for the mountaintops and the messes. That That's... That's authentic leadership. We're, we're in it for both. And I will just say this. You've been in the mountaintops and the messes with me. There's a bunch of you in this church who celebrated the birth of our youngest son with us. And there's a bunch of you here who grieved my brother's death with us. And I think that's literally the picture of the life cycle of doing church together. Right? That we grieve together and we celebrate together. I tell people all the time, I feel like this did not become our church home until my brother died. <laughs> I'd been here for two and a half years, but didn't feel like home yet in Fort Worth. And so we grieved together. That, that's, the, that's the culture we're, we're seeking to foster here. Um, they did not just listen to the Apostle Paul's messages, which were from the Apostle Paul. They watched them. Right? You ever heard that phrase, people would rather see a sermon than hear one? And and that idea of just doing life together is living an open life, an approachable life. And so I want to say this about being an authentic leader, and and, and that means not a perfect leader. I, I just want to clearly say this. Somebody recently said to me, they said, I haven't talked to you about fill in the blank because it's hard to talk to you about fill in the blank. Because I feel like you're so much farther down the road in fill in the blank than I am. And that just so grieved me because here's the deal. I, I don't know what happens about this platform. But somehow a message gets demonstrated that, that leaders in the church are like super Christians. And I just got to tell you, I, those of you who've been coming here for a long time, you've heard me say again and again, I am one day Apart from the grace of God, from utter ruin. I have not arrived. I have not attained. I'm going to tell you what I'm clinging to. With all of my heart and life, I'm clinging to the hope of the gospel to save me from me. And all I'm doing is inviting you to walk that exact same journey. Now, maybe there's areas that we discuss together that I might be in that area a little bit farther down the same road, but we're on the same road together. Make no mistake. We're on the same journey together. There's, there's no, well, that's untouchable guy or that lady. She's just so full of Jesus, right? Listen, they drive in the Metroplex traffic too. They, listen, I'm just telling you, this morning Lance was cussing so bad at our technical stuff. I'm just kidding. He wasn't. That's not his voice. It's actually mine. Anyways, um, that's a true story. Um, how did this turn into confession time? Okay, back to the text. Go look at my notes. Did you just hear my wife's sigh? She's like, he's not kidding, y'all. Okay. I am not 
just not perfect. I'm hopeless apart from the grace of Jesus. Which means we're at the exact same place. You've probably heard this saying that the ground at the foot of the cross is even. Um, That's the reality of what it looks like to just live in gospel community. The Apostle Paul's like, man, you've seen a lot of trials and you've seen a lot of tears. And he even says humility, which just sounds really weird to say about yourself. Anybody? Waiting for the light bulb? As I reflect on our time together, what I've really done best is humility. Is that not weird? We'll talk more about that next week. But that word really means brokenness. Here's the third thing, and this is where we'll part for the rest of our time together. A healthy church is faithful to the word. A healthy church is faithful to the word. We're going to look at several verses, but pick back up in verse number 20. He's reminding them what they know, right? You know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I just want to park there for a second. Y'all hear me. That is the mark of being faithful to the word is here's what I didn't skip saying. Anything that I believed was profitable for you. So the mark of being faithful is not. I know that I was entertaining and witty and funny and timely and relevant and cutting edge. No, the job is to proclaim the word that's good for you. Whether we want to hear it or not, whether it's what the culture wants to receive or not. What was profitable? That's the point. Teaching you in public and from house to house. So both in public and in private was centered on Proclaiming the word, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse number 24. I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself, if only. Here's the real win. Some powerful language. If only I may finish my course... The ministry I've received from Lord Jesus. Well, what is that? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, behold, if I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And I will just say this. um, I'm not announcing this morning my resignation, nor am I aware of any terminal illness that I have. But I can tell you at the 14-year mark, I can sincerely tell you I've just tried to be faithful to God's word. I have never stood on this stage, by God's grace and never will, and mailed it in. It's not always been as engaging or as witty, but this is, this is the barometer by which we will hold ourselves accountable. We'll be faithful to the word. We already read verse 28. Let's skip down to verse number 32. I love this verse. Now I commend you to God and to the word 
of his grace. Oof, I love that. Which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Listen, it's just about the word. Are we being faithful to the word? I, I've watched something happen just in the last seven days. I, I already made one football reference. If football means nothing to you, um, then you might not know the name Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy uh, was a great coach, and he's now a broadcaster with NBC Sports. Tony Dungy is a humble, spirit-filled follower of Jesus and a passionate believer in the Word of God. He's really just about as much pastor today or preacher today as he is commentator. During the whole football offseason, he just travels from event to event, speaking at churches and men's conferences and Christian leadership conferences. And one of the things he's incredibly passionate about is he speaks on behalf of the sanctity of life. And he has spoken publicly about the sanctity of marriage from a biblical definition. Last weekend during the wild card games, an article was published and went viral calling for his removal because of his hate speech and his bigoted views on the culture. And I'm telling you, he's never said a single thing that was not humbly, gently, and graciously in accordance with God's word. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I believe in my lifetime we're going to see a day where to be faithful to this word has a great cost attached to it. And I just think I'm not supposed to be the only one willing to die on that hill. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be a teen commitment. That we'd say, listen, man, the the trends come and go. The, The way we do church changes and seems Nowadays, we change it faster than we can begin to keep up with. But the word of God abides forever, and we will stand unshaken on the truth of God's word, despite its popularity. Apostle Paul said, man, I, I was just faithful to the word. I declared the word of grace to you, and that's your hope to stand. Sometimes I do hear from people. It's really interesting to listen to people talk about preaching uh, who, who've never preached. Um, because church is one of those really weird things. I didn't plan on saying this. This is dangerous. My wife is literally, don't go there. It's really weird, right? People talk with a lot of confidence about how church should look and run, even though they've never had a moment in leadership at church. They don't do that with anything else. Nobody goes to the dentist and tells them how he should do his job, right? This is just so weird. And so I hear opinions, you know, about people saying, I wish this was different, that was different, you know. And, and people even have opinions on what I should preach about. I wish you preached more about marriage. I wish you preached more about family. I, w- I wish you preached more about politics. I've heard that a lot the last five years for the first time ever in my ministry. I wish you talked more about politics. And as people have these agendas for what they wish I talked about, it's just so strange. I heard Skip Heitzig say this and thought, oh, same. I've never had a single person say, I really wish you preached more about tithing. And the funny thing is, the scriptures talk way more about tithing than they do about politics. I just have come to this conclusion. I just want to let the text drive the conversation. 
not what I want to talk about and not what you want to talk about. And when the text brings us to a part that talks about marriage, let's talk about marriage. And when the text brings us to a place that talks about parenting, let's talk about parenting. And when the text brings us to a place that talks about what it is to be a good Republican or Democrat in the state of Texas, if it ever gets to that text, I promise I will preach about it. And when the text talks about the fact that we are commanded to steward our finances and trust the Lord in obedience with that, and that there's a blessing attached to that obedience, we'll talk about that too. I just think the word does a better job at driving the conversation than we do. So let's just let the text. The older I get, the more my faith is strengthened in the sufficiency of the word. Like it's enough. It is all we need. It might not be all we want. But it is enough. And it alone has the words of life. There's an interesting story in the text. About the preaching of the word. Go back to verse number seven. Because we skipped over a story That's worth noticing on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech. That's for church. That's some church talk right there. He prolonged his speech until midnight. Y'all think I'm long winded. He prolonged his speech until midnight. And he apparently had a trip the next day. (laughs) But uh, Pause. Ten seconds. Notice that it was normal and natural to gather on the first day of the week here. Like that that was just kind of expected. Um, If you grew up in a faith tradition that said it's supposed to be Saturday, we're still under the law of the Sabbath. I would just point you to texts like this that show the normal rhythm of ecclesia. Is the first day of the week. Some who believe you're supposed to do communion every time they gather also look to this text and see, man, they. Wow. <laughs> She's from the word go today. That little hamster is barely hanging on to the wheel right now. I'm trying. Hey, babe. I know it wasn't you. I know it wasn't you. I'm letting you off the hook. It wasn't you. We know it wasn't you. Um, oh, yes. Okay. I really couldn't find it. Communion. So some point to this text and say this means we should do communion every time that we gather. And I would say that's a little bit of a stretch to force that into this text. We think that that's been our faith tradition, but biblically we don't see that required. It would make sense that they observed the Lord's Supper when Paul was in town for a visit. He was there for seven days. If I've got seven days with the Apostle Paul, I'm going to ask him to to deliver communion. Anyways, um, that wasn't even that important to say, and it was that distracting. Okay, back to the text. Verse number eight. There were many lamps in the upper room. Where we were gathered, 
in a young man. That word in the Greek actually means between the ages of 8 and 14, typically. A young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. I love how Luke is trying to be so nice about it. He's like, no, really, he wouldn't stop talking. And being overcome by sleep, can anybody relate to that in church? He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. There have been Sundays that I stood here and I thought some of you might have been dead. Remember who's writing this? Luke. And what was his occupation? He's a doctor. This isn't like he knocked himself unconscious. He seemed like he was mostly dead all day. No, like a doctor was like, okay, time of death. But he's still preaching time of death. But Paul went down and bent over him. Those of you who know your Bibles, you know that the prophet Elijah had a similar moment with a young man. Bent over him and taking in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed for life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so departed and they took the youth away alive and they were not a little comforted. There was a full-blown death and resurrection in the church house during that long sermon. Pretty amazing story. And I got to tell you, as we're talking about faithfulness to the word, it is so encouraging to me as a preacher to know that somebody fell asleep during the Apostle Paul's preaching. I'm serious. That literally encourages my soul. Like I warm myself by the fire of the word that the apostle Paul had somebody fall so asleep, he fell three stories to his death. He lived. I'm allowed to find comfort in that story. If, if they would have just buried him, we wouldn't laugh about it. But he, he, they brought him back to life. So it's just glorious to me. And the reality is this. I don't think the apostle Paul thought to himself, man, I need to use more illustrations next time or try to be funnier or be more dynamic. It's like, no, I'm going to raise this kid from the dead and then keep preaching until the sun comes up. I think there's beauty in that. The reality is, is every Sunday I'm up here and looking at some of your lovely top of your heads and it's cool. Truly, there's a lot of reasons people fall asleep in church. Look at your calendar from last week. There's a reason for some of you. This is the first time you have sat still. Since the last time you were in this room. I understand. Some of you work nights. Some of you have narcolepsy. Some of you are on medications. Some of you just think I'm boring. And I am at complete peace with that whole list. I love what Skip Heitzig said. He said, I'm not really bothered by sleepy bodies. It's sleepy hearts that grieve me. Man, if if you sit under the preaching of God's word and you hear half of it, then I believe that was good for our souls. If it's word, if it's the word, if it's the word of life. Praise God, you're here. If you've got a spouse that gets mad at you whenever you you nose off or whatever, I'm not mad at you. I just want you to know. I'm just glad you're here, because I believe if we'll sit under the preaching of God's word, our lives will be changed. I just believe there's that much power in the word, which leads me to this conclusion. 
This week, we are beginning our Sword Method Bible study in our community groups. Community groups relaunched this Sunday night, uh, I mean, uh, Wednesday night, sorry, the 25th. In a moment, there's going to be a QR code on the screen. If you've not joined a group yet, we still have some room. We'd love to see you get plugged in. If you are unable to attend on Wednesdays, we still want you to do this sword study with us for this semester. We're going to walk through nine different passages of Scripture. And we're just going to make a priority of the Word. We're just going to be faithful to the Word. Ask some questions of the text. Journal some thoughts that we hear from the Holy Spirit. And then let's sit down and talk about it. That simplicity, I think there's such beauty in that simplicity. I'll be honest with you. When we read about Ecclesia in the scriptures, it looked way more like sitting in a circle talking about a text than actually sitting in a row listening to somebody else talk about the text. It's way closer to to the biblical picture of church. And so if you've not committed to jump on board with that, that's the real challenge today at the end of this is let's not just say we believe a healthy church is committed to the word for the people who stand on the stage. Let's say a healthy church is marked by faithfulness to the word by everybody who calls this place their church home. Yeah? So let's take a step forward in our faithfulness to the word for the next several weeks together. The first step in that might be you might not be sure where you're at in your relationship with God. We'd love to have that conversation with you today. In just a moment as we're singing, there'll be folks in the prayer room in the back or you can text pray fw to 94000 or maybe you want to join temple this morning and say i've never really taken that step you can come see me or lance down front or maybe the reality is god's put something totally different in your heart today and you just need some space to do business with god in just a moment as we sing this song it's an opportunity for you to process that and pray about that you can come kneel here and pray or ask somebody else for prayer today my question for you is do you see yourself as part of a team that's leading and serving in the body of Christ here today? Are we fostering a culture here of authenticity and genuineness, walking in the gospel and growing in our next steps as followers of Jesus? And are we as a family committed to remain faithful above all else to the living, breathing word of God?